1: this is Cammie. Julius Robinson joins us this week on Money Tales. As Julius explains, he came from pretty meager beginnings, raised by a single mother of four kids living in one of the traditionally low-income areas of Los Angeles. When he was a college student, Julius made a commitment to himself to shine a light over his shoulders so that others wouldn't stumble on the potholes and rocks in the path he was taking. As he continues through life, Julius has come to understand that the beacon of light he's creating needs to be amplified by the people following him. Doing so creates opportunities where people and communities can manifest themselves. Today, Julius serves as head of Union Bank's Corporate Social Responsibility Group for the Americas, covering the U.S., Latin America, and Canada. His wide-ranging responsibilities include charitable giving, community outreach, and Chief Community Reinvestment Act Compliance Officer.
2: Hi, this is Sandy. Here are three key Money tales conversation topics that we discuss in this conversation. First, how creating your own value means creating your own brand and investing in yourself. As Julius puts it, the most important asset you have is yourself. Second, and related to that, each of us has valuable resources that go beyond our financial capital. We have social capital, intellectual capital, spiritual capital, legacy capital, and more. And third, how people would rather talk about more intimate things in their lives rather than their finances. We hope you share this episode with a friend, and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now, on to our conversation with
1: Julius Robinson. Hello, Money Tales listeners. This is Cammie, and I'm here with my co-host, Sandy. Hello, Cammie. Hey, Sandy. We're going through a really volatile time in the market, as you know, and our listeners know. Would you share some about the money conversations you're having with clients that we serve at Aspirant to help them through this period? Cammie,
2: we've talked on Money Tales before about one of the tools we use with clients, which is developing a long-term wealth plan that models out their future based on assumptions that we make today. And during volatile investment markets, we go back to those wealth plans and we f- refresh them and see how the results look. And for everyone, when the investment values fall in value, that makes the results look worse But every client is different. Every person is different. Your plan is based on what's most important to you. It's based on the wealth you've created already, earnings you might be continuing to bring in the door, how you make decisions about what to do with your money, how you're spending it, how you're investing it, how you're giving it away. So there are a lot of different levers that come into these plans. And when portfolio values fall, it's really a matter of just going back to the plan revisiting the goals, making sure that our clients know what's most important to them and how that falls in the priority of decisions that they're making today. While it's important to make really good decisions today, we all know that investment values will continue to change. They don't go down forever, They just like they don't go up forever. And a lot of other things can change too. Having gone through many cycles like this one in my career, This does feel a little different because of the pandemic. I feel like having gotten this far through the pandemic has given a lot of our clients, and this is true of friends and family as well, but a lot of people have a lot of new perspectives on life. And what's most important, I think, is more crystal clear. The fragility of life is more crystal clear and really taking advantage of the resources that you have and that you might be working toward accumulating becomes even more important too. So the conversations this time around, Kemi, I think are even more deep and heartfelt than they've been in the past. And we will get through this. And it's always a good idea to refresh a plan and and see what's going on and continue to make really good decisions for yourself based on what's most important to you.
1: What great money conversations that you're having and that we're having with our clients and I'm sure others out there. And I love this idea of new perspectives as a result of what we've gone through, which would be a, a perfect topic for our next guest on Money Tales I'd like to welcome Julius Robinson. It's really wonderful to have you here on Money Tales. Hi,
2: Julius.
0: Hi. It's uh, such a pleasure to be here with both of you ladies. I'm gratified, pleased, and honored to be amongst you and uh, hope that there is some value in this discussion.
1: Wonderful. Julius, would you start us off by introducing yourself and please share two to three of the pivotal moments in your life that really impacted who you are today?
0: I have spent the majority of my career in financial services. I have about 45 years in banking in various capacities. My most current role is that I head up corporate social responsibility for a multinational financial institution that provides me with the opportunity to think critically about how my bank's resources and assets are put into play to enhance the lives of our customers to stimulate economic development and vitality in the communities that are served by our company and to work with, I think, a lot of forward-thinking individuals who are approaching the idea of wealth creation, sustainability, and this whole aspect around generational wealth and how it is happening. Most of my endeavors are focused in on working with low to moderate income communities and individuals, small business owners and entrepreneurs, and helping them create a foundation that stimulates that generational wealth that we've been talking about now.
1: That's wonderful, Julius. Tell us about growing up. And importantly, how was money handled in your home and talked about?
0: Yeah. So I came up from pretty near beginnings, raised by a single mother, four kids living in one of the traditionally low-income areas of Los Angeles. So money was a necessity, but not always important, but certainly managing it was something that I got some really good direction from my mom, who perhaps was preparing me for the future. I didn't know then, but many of the things that I hold as values now were things that I picked up from her. And I think maybe through some stream of heredity, I was always inspired as a way to be even a young entrepreneur, as a way to obtain the things that I desired that my mom wasn't able to provide me. So very early on, (laughs) this is going to really sound arcane, but I had a paper route, (laughs) did laundry, some babysitting, all of the means to really acquire money to get the things that I wanted to have. So those values and respect for money and valuing money is something that I think was perhaps unintentionally, but a byproduct of my economic environment and and upbringing.
2: And Julius, how did you go from that upbringing into banking?
0: That's an entirely different story because that wasn't my aspiration. I mean, I was always thoughtful and I, I did get this from my mom around politics. And my degree was in international relations and diplomacy and I did a minor in economics. So I was headed to the Foreign Service, was my ambition. But a funny thing happened along the way. Reality sets in, and as a graduating undergrad, I realized that I, again, getting back to the money situation, that I really needed to create some sustainable and predictable way in order to survive both in the economic, but also the social environment that I managed to create for myself.
1: Say more about that.
0: Well, it's just that as a young college graduate, you're faced with a lot of social obligations that require that you be able to make investments in a good time and camaraderie that you have with your friends. And so you have to, again, think more critically about how do you sustain your social station. And the challenge is, and I think many kids of color face this today because of the meager upbringings that they often come from. So that's been one of the things that has been really slow to change, is that there's some social pressures. You are sometimes thrust into social situations in which you're amongst other individuals who have the benefit of leveraging generational wealth and have established some social norms around that. And if you want to play in that pool, then you have to find a way to sustain yourself. And so that requires that you make some self-sacrifices. You be strategic about where you engage and how you engage. And all that is the basis of how do you establish some income stream that allows you to harmonize the necessities of life as well as the luxuries of life in the proper proportion, if that makes sense at all.
2: It does. And Julius, I'm curious, when did you become aware of intergenerational wealth?
0: Well, I think the concept is still relatively new. I think as we as a society have started to explore the haves and the have-nots, we quickly got to the point that the starting line isn't always the same for everybody. And, you know, historically, the African-American community, the indigenous community and certain segments of our immigrant community began life here at a slightly disadvantage because they didn't have the stock to start creation. As an example, in some areas, there were charters written into deeds of trust around allowing African-Americans or Asians to buy property. Even if you had the money, you couldn't buy property in some place by statute or by law. And so your ability to create that generational wealth was stymied.
2: It sickens me just to hear it. Obviously, this is not a new concept, but it's just gross.
0: It isn't, but we've been able to, with the passage of time and the creativity of scholars, we've been able to do some really deep forensics and to make some connections between why is this person a millionaire and why is this person a pauper? And at the end of the day, it goes back to opportunities. And those opportunities, when you get back to it, really stem from decisions that were made not in your current generation, but the generations before you and how they've been able to leverage that acquired wealth. Some of it has just simply been things are more valuable today than they were 100 years ago today. So if your family had a home 100 years ago today that they paid $5,000 for, that same home today, could very easily be 5 million or five hundred thousand, but you have to have that opportunity and what do you do with that along the way and so being able to parlay if you will that generational wealth to then start a new business again is another way in which you're able to leapfrog some of the economic challenges that people who don't have the opportunity have yet to overcome so So it's those sort of things that I think are principally important. And now we've been able to put a label on it, and then we call it generational wealth. But it's always been there. It just probably has not been as aptly described as it has been in current times.
2: I like the way you described it, even though those words, generational wealth, might not have been used as you were growing up. But I I am curious, when did you first become aware that there's a different lifestyle to the one that you grew up in?
0: I think you see it around you. In your neighborhood you see the folks that have the big house. They have the newer if not new car or have the great job which is a byproduct of probably getting a good education. And so I think without having the label of generational wealth I was always aware of the fact that it didn't seem fair from the standpoint of it's not equal. It doesn't just happen. There is a process of acquiring wealth. And you've heard the adage that you got to spend money to make money, but you got to have money to spend in order to make the money. So how that happens, there's only two ways to do that. One, you have to have a legacy of assets, valuable assets that can be converted into cash that you can then make these investments. Or you happen to just work really hard in your current environment and establish your own basis and of course, the third is, hey, you hit the lotto. Uh, so, <laughs> so the third option is so remote. The first and second option, though, are really practical approaches. And so I think I knew that there was always something different. But I also knew that for me and many of the people that worked around me, option number two was the only way. I had to find a way to create value either in myself and investing in my own personal brand so that I became my own asset to make money. Because I didn't come from a family that had the opportunity to make those investments to acquire that generational, soon to be generational wealth, as a result of investments that they were making before. So as an example, my mom didn't buy her first house until she was in her late 40s. And so by that time, I was in my late teens, early 20s. And so we were late when you consider that at that particular time, we as an African-American people had been in this country for more than 100 years. What was happening through that time? Well, we were contributing to the generational wealth of the landowners in terms of what they were able to use based on, in some cases, the physical labor that we were able to produce that produced this wealth spring. Dollars. I mean, we were human machines. We were human factories that were working in ways to benefit the aristocracy at that time and creating that generational wealth, although we weren't able to participate in it. Either the fact that we weren't getting the wages, we were prevented from investing the wages in which we had. And in some cases, when you think about the legacies of like Greenwood, in which we attained this level as a community of generational wealth, it was easily taken away without. Any consequence. So those things made it really challenging.
1: Thanks for bringing that to life. Julius, you mentioned two words sacrifice and being strategic. Sacrifice and strategic. It was what you really were channeling when you became a banker and being the sacrifice, one of which I think was not going into the Foreign Service. I'm curious, being strategic, becoming a banker. Tell us what that was all about. It's a really exciting profession. Tell us what you were thinking as you were entering into this career.
0: Yeah. So again, the, getting back to your original question, I mean, my decision to become a banker and to abandon my role to join the Foreign Service, I was going to be the next Andrew Young, was one predicated on some unforeseen barriers that African-Americans had in getting into the Foreign Service and truly being successful there. Up until Andrew Young, there was really no Black ambassadors, but there was no reason why I couldn't be one. At least that was the way that I thought. But systemically, there was. But fundamentally, I thought about now, how do I start getting on the path of creating my own value? And I said before, you have to invest in yourself and create your own individual brand and then leverage that product in order to create opportunities to gain wealth and income. And so fundamentally I thought, hey, where is all the money? It's in banks. If you want money, where should you be? Banking. And so it was really just that (laughs) that chain that really led me into the world of banking. And then once I got there, I realized that being a banker was more than just making change, taking deposits. There were a whole lot of things that Being a successful banker entailed, many of which had nothing to do with being great at math or those things. It was really about the sales aspect, socialization and understanding people. So I was able to use a lot of skills I acquired through college, which, again, gets back to a major stepping stone. So young people, if you're out watching it, don't discount the opportunity to get a college education. It is Fundamentally important, whether you plan to be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company or whether or not you choose to be the CEO of a local company in the neighborhood in which you grew up. But you need that foundation. You need that awareness. And what I found out is, is that having an opportunity to go to college and acquire all of these socialization skills and realizing that the world was much bigger than the neighborhood that I grew up in. And then being focused on how do I integrate and assimilate into that society in ways that didn't have me discount myself, but certainly be aware of the social and cultural differences and norms outside of my community. And then being able to navigate through those successfully was important to me being a successful banker than it was that I figure out what the return on investment was going to be on a 30 year loan. And so that I was able to use effectively. And thankfully I had some allies along the way who were very helpful to me. And many of them didn't look like me, but they saw things in me that I didn't see in myself. So again, it gets back to that socialization aspect, really of how you relate to people. You don't have to sell yourself out, but you do have to be sensitive that not everybody sees the world like you do. And sometimes you have to look through the world through their eyes in order for them to see in your eyes, what your full potential can be.
2: Julius, as you were coming up through your career, how did your relationship with money change?
0: Well, it became increasingly more important as I started to think about the things that I wanted in my life. Fundamentally, they were pretty simple. You know, I wanted a new car. I wanted to live in a better apartment in a better neighborhood. I wanted to be able to dress in ways that were consistent with my social and professional environment. So these are kind of the necessities in life. And I realized that there was a really clear path that meant that I had to be really diligent in investing in myself first so that the product that I could deliver to my company was going to be a perceived greater value, which led to greater opportunity because I was able to solicit the support of increasingly more powerful allies who were either mentors or sponsors of me as I moved through my career. So the investment had to be made in myself first so that then I could create a value proposition and a confidence in my allies along the way. Because in most cases, and even up until today, if I walk into a room of senior executives in most major financial institutions, I am the only one of color. There was one point where I thought, oh, that's really cool. But then I thought, I can't be the only one. So when people would say, oh, you know, he's the highest ranking African-American. And and I I was almost a little bit embarrassed by that because modesty said I wasn't really that good. But it said, why is that the case? And then what can I do in order to change that paradigm? So as I started to go up through my career, and a change levels of success. I started to fulfill a commitment that I made myself in some of my early college days that I would be passionate about shining the light over my shoulder so that others wouldn't stumble on the potholes and rocks of the path that I took to get where I am. And so, some of this was informal. Eventually, became formal, and there was value in that too because even today there are a few places I can go where if I need support, I can't get it because I've already invested in that network. And so the pay it forward, the return on investment turned out to be much more valuable to me than the traditional way in which we think about it in terms of income that you get on a monetary exchange. It was the social currency that I was able to leverage that made it very valuable to me because I think as individuals, we lose sight of the fact that the most important asset that you have is yourself. So you got to be as prudent about the investments that you make on yourself as you start to think about where you want to be and how you want to be. And you have to make those investments in yourself, education, expertise, perspective. All of those things have to be very, very important, which enhances the perceived value that you bring to the room that you're in, which again, attract. People like to invest in winners. We like to invest in winners. And so you have to perceive be as being a winner. And if you're perceived as being a sensitive winner, that's an enhancement to the value that you bring to any social engagement that you have.
2: I'm really glad you're bringing this up. One of the things that we often talk to clients about is their capital. And most people will default only to their financial capital. But our capital is vast. The balance sheet, the traditional balance sheet is short-sighted because it's just looking at assets and liabilities and dollar terms. But there's social capital, which you're bringing to life. There's intellectual capital, which you're bringing to life. There's also spiritual and legacy capital. And so it's really interesting when we sit down with families and we really chart out all these different types of capital because they can see it Right. That social currency that you're talking about so beautifully can be brought to life in paper of just kind of understanding the different relationships that you have. And I love what you're sharing, Julius, in terms of shining light behind you and helping others achieve their fullest capital.
0: Yeah. That light, that beacon, needs to be amplified by the person that follows you. So you're not just lighting the path, you're really shining the way as a collective and creating opportunities where people can go in and manifest themselves. And fundamentally that's been the basis of a lot of the social work that I do and why I think I've been so successful in managing my company through its endeavors around corporate social responsibility and creating an image of the brand that we are sensitive and community partners and fundamentally engaged in the ecosystem of wealth creation.
1: Julius, would you share more about that? So you are working at a multinational organization. You're the head of corporate social responsibility. First, maybe even define what is corporate responsibility in your eyes? How do we learn from what you're doing?
0: The whole aspect of CSR, corporate social responsibility, is still relatively new. When I started in this position about 12 years ago, people were really trying to understand what CSR was all about and why it's going to be valuable. And I think one of the reasons why I got into this position was in my roles prior to that, I learned very quickly that the differentiating factor in a homogeneous industry like banking, in which we all offer checking accounts and loans and those things, and we would often compete on, we have the lowest rate or the highest rate, depending (laughs) on location, location, location. I started to learn that that was less important than... My showing solidarity and sensitivity around the interests in the communities in which we did business, and align myself with those individuals who shared that vision, and that became a differentiating factor. So there's an old saying that people don't care what you know; they know that you care. That's true, and so that became a success quotient for me in my division, and when I took over as one of three market presidents in my bank and leading my division from third to first was really predicated on some fundamental things. And that was that very adage is that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. They need to know that you share values and you share interests around common things, and they're developing a level of comfort and trust because you share these common interests. And that became a tremendously different rating factor. And so people were making decisions to come and bank with me and my company, despite the fact that we didn't have the highest rate and we didn't have or the lowest rate. And this particularly manifested itself during the 2008 economic downturn in which the 99 percenters and all of the economic upheaval points where there was massive foreclosures and those sort of things in which... We were deemed to be the safe haven as municipalities made the connection that, hey, it isn't so important that we deal with this bank because they give us the best rate on our product. We need to make sure that we are aligning ourselves with a company that manifests the same ethics that we have. And so in some cases, we were a flight to safety from an ethical standpoint as we watch some of our larger, more pervasive competitors succumb to some of the traditional ills that bankers have in terms of being merciless around creating a return on investment. And so it was factors like that that eventually led to our CEO tapping me on the shoulder one day and saying, Joyce, our CEO wants to meet you on Friday at four o'clock and could you stop? by?" (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this is one of two things. Either I'm Valerie Victorian, or I'm getting... (laughs) What he said was, is that my predecessor was retiring after some time, and he was very successful, but he knew that there was a different approach, and that corporate social responsibility had to be less of a community chess, this island or black box of goodwill, but really needed to be structured in a way that created a double bottom line benefit, and what I mean by that is... The company wins, the community wins. And getting back to creating that ecosystem, if you are diligent and successful around making prudent investments in your communities that enhance the vitality and the vibrance of those communities, then what you get is better customers. Better customers means that there is greater return to the bank for the products and services that they put out. Fulfilling
2: prophecy. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's,
0: it's pretty fundamental. But you start to create this ecosystem that's based on goodwill, thoughtfulness, integrity.
1: You attract and retain talent as a result as well.
0: There you go. Nobody cares about that if they don't trust the people that they're working for.
1: That's right. And
2: when it comes to money, there has to be a lot of trust.
0: There is a lot of trust because one of the other things I learned early on was that people would rather talk with you about more intimate things in their lives than they would be about their finances. And that seems strange. (laughs) (laughs) Fundamentally, it seems strange. I may talk to you about who knows what other sort of very embarrassing or intimate situations that might happen in your life with a perfect stranger, but I won't tell you how much money I have in my checking account or the fact that I had a foreclosure or the fact that I had a business that failed or one that was great. So it all comes around having comfort and trust. That comfort and trust is based on a solidarity of ideas, mutual ambitions, that are not just given lip service, but are manifested in ways that are tangible, right? So we can go back. I can go back and say, hey, we're investing in this organization, this organization, this organization. We have provided opportunities for these people. That's real stuff. That isn't aspirational. That's concrete. In terms of those results. And so all of these things contribute to the whole idea of wealth creation. My job is to help individuals and communities go on a path that establishes a pattern of wealth creation. We collaborate with nonprofits and NGOs who have similar views, but have the ability to reach greater constituencies than we can. And so we don't pretend to be the holistic solution, but rather, a contributor and convener of other like-minded institutions and organizations that are dedicated to creating this dream of economic vitality that creates this cycle of social and economic ROI that creates this fertile field of much better clients than they were before we went into the process.
2: Julius, it sounds like that flashlight you were holding over your shoulder is like a big, huge spotlight.
0: I hope that it becomes this beacon and magnified by the other people who come behind me. And maybe some of them will hear what we're talking about today and they'll go, that's it.
2: Tell us, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be
0: with? Well, right now it's with my children who are now reaching the age where I'm encouraging them and pushing them to start thinking and start measuring their own level of success. So I've had this theory, which is not proven by any fact, but it's really based on my own path around wealth creation and sustainability. And that is when you're in your 20s, you should remind you, this is old because I'm thinking about myself here. But when I was in my 20s, I knew that I need to make as much money a year as I was chronologically. But when I hit my 30s, I had to double that. And by the time I hit my 40s, it had to at least be 120% of that. So those are the goals that I set for myself.
2: Those are high exponential goals.
0: (laughs) Well, you know what? If you don't aim high, so another expression, I tend to speak a lot in analogies and stories, but there is a song that says, if you shoot for the moon, if you don't make it, you're still among the stars. So set your goals high. But if you don't make it, don't feel like a failure because you are still much better off than you were or you were still on land looking up and thinking about where you should be. So go for it. Go for it. And if you fail, and even if you fail, even if you fall like a meteor, it is only an opportunity to analyze your failures as you start the next journey, the next rocket ship, The next attempt at the moon, you will be better for it. But you got to set your sights high. And there are going to be people around you that are going to say, like you said, wow, that's pretty high. That's pretty ambitious, Julius. That's that's really something. Good luck on that one. And your response would be, I need all the luck I can get, but I can't fail. Even if I fail, I can't fail. Because I am better off as a result of the experience that I've had. And again, I talked a little bit about those potholes and stumbling blocks along the way. Now I know where they are. So I can sidestep those things as I start to move forward. My path to doing that was to reverse engineer into what I wanted to be. So if I wanted to make $60,000 a year by the time I was at 30, I had to reverse engineer and thinking about what I was going to do, what training that I needed to have? When did I need to do it? Where were the allies? I had to have that all mapped out in my head to go forward. Now, I wasn't always successful, but eventually I landed on the moon. I'm very happy with where I am right now. I can't tell you that it was a linear path, but I can tell you, touchdown, the Eagle has landed.
1: Thank you for that, Julius. We really appreciate your inspiration, that you brought your trust, empathy, understanding, and passion to Money Tales. Thank you so much for sharing and joining us.
0: Yeah, it was my pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to Asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.